Let's say you live in a place where you feel you're being colonised by outsiders, where your language is disappearing, your religion is being mocked. You long to control your own destiny and to preserve your own culture. So what if someone offers an answer to your prayers? But it means moving to an unknown continent 8,000 miles away. How desperate would you have to be to go? In the second half of the 19th century, when millions of British people were chasing their dreams across the globe, a group of Welsh migrants set out on an extraordinary mission to build a new Welsh homeland on the remote plains of Patagonia. The Welsh were seeking to escape the sense that they were always subordinated by the English, subordinated economically, politically, socially, and particularly linguistically. The irony is that the anti-colonial strategy that the Welsh adopted was actually to go and colonise somewhere else. All Welsh people who are of the kind of romantic persuasion, they feel this intrigue with the old story about the Oladva, the colony, the Welsh colony that was set up in Argentina. It's one place that you need to go to once in your life. I'm Mukti Jane Campion, and in this episode, I'm uncovering the romance and the reality of Oladva the little corner of South America that once upon a time became Welsh. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 6, A Welsh Utopia in Patagonia. Liverpool, May the 25th, 1865. 153 Welsh men women and children assemble on the landing stage at Pier Head, ready to board a small wooden tea clipper called the Mimosa. As the ship prepares to depart, the travellers gather on deck. The flag of the Welsh dragon is hoisted to the masthead and the air is filled with a newly written verse. We have found a better land in the far south. It is Patagonia. We will live there in peace, without fear of treachery or war, and a Welshman on the throne. Praise be to God. As the ship moves away, among the figures left waving from the dockside is a preacher from Bala in mid-Wales called Michael D. Jones. He's the man responsible for first conjuring up the vision of a Welsh utopia in Patagonia. He's promoted it vigorously in lecture tours and newspaper articles, and with the help of his wealthy wife, raised the money to charter this ship. Before we follow the journey of the Mimosa passengers to Patagonia, I want to try and understand more about what life was like in 19th century Wales. What drove these people to embark on such a drastic and risky venture? 
I'm Gareth Jenkins. I'm a Welshman living in Shrewsbury, and I'm from a village called Treveglwys in Montgomeryshire. Gareth Jenkins became interested in the Welsh emigration to Patagonia after discovering that a family from his own village had made the journey. Through my childhood, there was a big photograph on the wall. It was in brown sepia, but it was there was a big family on the wall. I never asked who this family was. I assumed that it was my family. But no, it wasn't my family at all. It was the Brunt family who sent this picture from Patagonia to my great-grandfather. And they had it framed, and it was up on the wall. Now, what I didn't realize was that Benjamin Brunt was the closest friend. Really, they were close friends of my great-grandfather. Intrigued, Gareth started to read the correspondence between Benjamin Brunt and his own great-grandfather. He's also made several trips to Patagonia to find out more about the Welsh who went there in the 19th century. What do you think was driving them to leave Wales? When all you can see around you is poverty, there was huge dissatisfaction with their situation. You're talking about a nation that were generally tenant farmers. The land of Wales was owned by a handful of wealthy absentee landlords living in London. They'd get the big house in Wales with the visit occasionally, but they just put their hand out for their rents, whether the tenants could afford it or not, or if the tenants had had a good agricultural harvest or not. And you had the religious aspect because they had to pay 10% of their salary to the Church of England, which they never went to, because they were supporters of the new nonconformist movement, the Baptists, the Congregationalists, the Methodists. There was this wonderful singing that they were famous for in the chapels. Over the course of the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was rapidly transforming life in Wales as the growing demand for its coal and steel created new job opportunities, drawing tens of thousands of workers from all over the United Kingdom. And the Welsh population, indigenously speaking Welsh, of course, suddenly found they weren't being understood by their fellow citizens. The response was a rising tide of Welsh nationalism, which alarmed the British government and prompted new measures to quell the social unrest. In some parts of, say, mid-Wales, where I'm from, they encouraged families to come from Leicestershire and Cheshire and Staffordshire, they encouraged them to come to work as farm labourers in these rural areas, not to work the mines, but purely to intermarry with the local Welsh to stop them being so cantankerous by kind of diluting the Welsh culture. You had the bizarre situation of the famous Welsh dragon flag, which we all know and love these days, it was forbidden to display this flag, this emblem of Welshness. In 1847, a government report on the poor state of Welsh education blamed the use of the Welsh language and the immorality of Welsh women for the backwardness of the population. The report led to concerted efforts to eradicate Welsh speaking in the name of progress. This added to the sense that the Welsh were being treated as second-class citizens in their own country. So there was a general feeling of let's get away from this misery 
and go somewhere where there's a new beginning. Emigration. Cardiff direct to New York with South Wales Atlantic Steamship Company. Steerage passage £6.60, including abundance of well-cooked provisions. And mattresses provided for free. Tens of thousands of Welsh did migrate to America, but not all of them found what they were looking for. With all the people who emigrated to America, their Welshness disappeared faster than it was in Wales itself, because as soon as they got to America, suddenly they're in this sea of uh, European emigration, and, you know, the one common language was English. So their Welshness was being eroded faster than ever. So a lot of Welsh came back. Among them was Michael D. Jones, whose disillusionment with America led to the idea that Argentina might be a better place to plant a Welsh colony. But why would such a distant country ruled by Spanish-speaking Catholics be considered a suitable destination for Welsh-speaking non-conformists? My name's Lucy Taylor. I'm from the Department of International Politics here at Aberystwyth University. And I am a specialist in Latin American politics and society, but working particularly on the Welsh in Patagonia community known as Oulava. And guess what? I speak Spanish. I speak Welsh. Can you explain why the Welsh chose Patagonia to settle? So back in the mid-19th century, the Argentine state was busy trying to construct this new nation of Argentina. Argentina had become independent from the Spanish early 19th century. They had a sense in which in order to become modern, civilized and prosperous in the world, it was necessary to adopt not only European systems and ideas, but also to bodily import Europeans themselves. So they set about asking for settlers to come to Argentina. They were looking for families. They were looking for rural labourers, as it were, who could come to Argentina. And the Welsh seemed absolutely ideal to the Argentine state. So that's how come the Welsh ended up in Patagonia. The Argentine state offers the Welsh free plots of land in Patagonia, a vast remote area 700 miles south of the capital, Buenos Aires, and as yet largely unoccupied by Europeans. For the Welsh visionaries, its very isolation is its major appeal, as Abraham Matthews, a Congregationist minister travelling on board the Mimosa, describes. An empty country without being under a state government, where the Welsh could settle and rule themselves and ensure the continuation of their national habits and establish the kernel of a Welsh government with a Welsh population, Welsh schools, and complete enough possession of the country so that they would not be swallowed up by other nations round about. So this is the powerful and ambitious dream sustaining the passengers on their uncomfortable two-month sea voyage, during which several children die. On July the 28th, in the depth of the southern winter, the mimosa arrives in Patagonia, into a natural harbour which the Welsh had named Porth Madryn on a scouting visit three years earlier. 
Lewis Jones was one of the two men sent out on that trip, and he'd come back full of stories of the paradise to be found in the Chubut Valley, a wide river full of fish and fertile plains of lush grass and fruit trees. And now here he was, waiting to welcome the first arrivals. So when the 150 people arrived from Liverpool, they expected a land of milk and honey, but all they got was a desert. They were put onto the beach. There was a welcoming party there for them with the bad news. No fresh water there in Puerto Madryn. The water is 60 miles away over the desert at the river. But there's no road, there's no infrastructure whatsoever. It was a disaster. The ship, by the way, the Momosa, had abandoned them, went straight on to its next job. There was no going back home. And they genuinely felt cheated. They had no choice but to walk the 60 miles with all their possessions, wheelbarrows, over the desert until they reached the river. There's a river, Chibut, in Welsh it's called the Camwy. It's a very long river that starts in the Andes and then meanders down 300 miles to the Atlantic. What they found was a place which was very alien to them. As we all know, it rains a lot in Wales. And so Wales, everything's very green. Then they arrived in Patagonia to find somewhere extremely open, very dry, very windy, greys and browns and beige kinds of colours. It must have been a tremendous culture shock for them. They were a very poorly selected group of people. There was, I think, 19 non-conformist ministers and their wives and children. There were cobblers and printers and uh, tailors, but not that many farmers. Actually, only a handful of farmers, almost failed farmers, really. They were leaving Wales because they really hadn't made it in Wales. The Chubut Valley doesn't even have trees that the new settlers can chop down to build homes. Their first crude shelters dug from the soil are soon destroyed by a flash flood. Early attempts at farming are equally disastrous. And this land that they've been allocated turns out not to be as empty as they'd been led to believe. The kinds of people who were occupying Patagonia were indigenous people and they were nomadic people, would traverse vast expanses, these vast plains, searching for guanacos and ostriches to eat. The ethnic groups that were most dominant in this area were the Tehuelche, the Pampa, but also the Mapuche. They were organised usually around a leader, a cacique, and they would travel as a group. So far, these indigenous people have managed to rebuff many attempts at settlement of Patagonia by the Spanish. But with the Welsh, they decide to take a different tack. They saw that the Welsh had arrived in the Chubut Valley. They looked relatively uh, friendly. Uh, they were family groups. The Welsh had arrived as family groups. They had about six guns between them. They um, did not look threatening. Around nine months after they had arrived, uh, some indigenous people come and see them, basically in order to set up trading links. We have one document, which is a letter that was written by one of the caciques, one of the sort of the leaders of these communities, 
to the Welsh, setting out exactly what they would like to do. Without having the pleasure of knowing you personally, I know as a fact that you are peopling the Chapat with a people from the other side of the sea. I am the cacique of the tribe of the Pampa Indians to whom belong the plains of the Chabat. I know very well you have negotiated with the government to colonize the Chabat, but you ought also to negotiate with us who are the owners of these lands. Be not afraid of us, my friends. I and my people are contented to see you colonize, for we shall have a nearer place to go in order to trade. The government tells me to leave you to increase in numbers and I shall do all in my power to help you. Letter from the Cacique Antonio to Lewis Jones, 1865. I would say that the letter was businesslike. It displays a high level of knowledge of the political arrangements in the much bigger, wider area and an understanding that the things that they were offering were used outside of Argentina. So they were offering um, guanaco skins and these rear feathers, which look a bit like ostriches, which would eventually find their way to the streets of Paris and London and New York to adorn the hats of ladies. So that's what they were offering. And in return, they wanted foodstuffs, clothing, tobacco, For the Welsh struggling to survive in this hostile landscape, the help of the indigenous people proves vital. They could see that these people were dying on their feet. They were starving. And a relationship developed very quickly with the local Indians showing them how to survive in the extreme heat of the summer and the extreme cold of the winter. The indigenous people, they helped the Welsh by teaching them how to hunt, how to navigate this very harsh and what is quite an alien terrain to the Welsh, how to find water, where the trackways were, what sort of plants might be used for medicinal purposes. But they also taught them how to ride. The Welsh people looked after horses, but they didn't necessarily know how to ride. And they learned very quickly. After 18 months and many deaths, the Welsh are still struggling to make this arid land produce crops successfully. Two Jenkinses, husband and wife, of all the farmers that were on the ship, they were the most enterprising. It was Mrs Jenkins that said to her husband, the only way that we can stay here is if we can irrigate this whole area by damming the Chibut River 20 miles upriver and then digging two canals along the sides of the hills, and then we can regulate the amount of water that goes to the rest of these beautiful lands. And that's what happened. And because of that, things improved, but it took so long. They needed to bring in 450 new people to dig these canals from Wales. And this is when the Brunt family went over in 1881. Now, Benjamin Brunt started life in Wales on a farm that he rented that was only six acres. So he used his guile and his wit to marry as well as he could to gain extra acres. Over the years, he got to a state where he had a farm of 150 acres. So it showed he was an enterprising 
chap. And uh, this last farm that he had was called the Argoid. But as he explained to my great-grandfather, I'll never actually own it because, you know, the landlord won't sell it. So I, I don't feel that I have this prospect of owning my own farm. So when he saw this offer of tract of land for nothing to be given to you when you arrive in Argentina, he thought this is his big opportunity. On arrival in Patagonia, Benjamin Brunt and his family get their free plot of 240 acres. He also called it Argoid, to remember the farm that he'd left Wales. And he was a very intelligent man, and he wrote every month to my great-grandfather. He describes the valley as a howling wilderness and sets about trying to cultivate it. With the new irrigation channels working successfully, he is eventually able to produce wheat, and not just any old wheat. It was some of the best red wheat that the British had ever had. Because of the north-south hemisphere thing, Patagonian wheat always arrived at the right time to get a premium price anyway. And the best wheat was produced by Benjamin Brunt. And that isn't my opinion. He won all the big prizes. Including a gold medal at the Paris exhibition for the best head of wheat in the world. Life was definitely looking up. The Welsh seem to have managed to create a happy coexistence with the indigenous people. The Welsh say that this relationship was friendship. Quite whether indigenous people felt that this was a relationship of actual friendship is very difficult to say. However, what is clear is that this relationship was one that was peaceable, but it was also one that was completely necessary for the Welsh in order to actually make their Welsh homeland a viable proposition. A poem written in 1879 by one of the Welsh settlers for their community newspaper describes the exhilaration of an early morning horseback expedition, riding out with dogs and guns in pursuit of the ostrich-like birds that roamed the flat plains. It gives a glimpse of the new lifestyles they were learning from the indigenous people. Uh, they also had kind of annual games. They have horsemanship and all kinds of races. They were great games. And this annoyed the Argentinian authorities because the whole point about having these Europeans there is to get rid of all these Indians. Do you think the Welsh saw the indigenous people as equals? It was a strange relationship because in some ways, particularly when the Welsh were out in the landscape, there was a phrase they would, would be called, they are our brothers of the Pyth. They are our brothers in the desert. And there's a lot of evidence to say that when people were traveling, when the Welsh were traveling, if you met some indigenous people along the way, that you would camp together overnight, share some food, and then go off and go your separate ways, as it were. So in the context of the sort of the open pampas itself, there was much more of a sense of equality. However, in the towns, particularly as the towns became a little bit more organised, there was a much stronger sense that 19th century racial order was reasserted. And in the 19th century, there are very clear understandings about the association between whiteness, Europeanness, 
civilization and modernity and ideas that either black people or indigenous people were understood to be people of the past and savage, people who were backward. For the Welsh, then, the idea is that you can treat people with respect in terms of trade and maybe in terms of sharing a loaf of bread. But nevertheless, means that there's a kind of a racial hierarchy that's going on. Doesn't this seem a bit ironic, given that they left Wales because they felt they were being racially discriminated against in their own country by the English? This is the the really interesting thing in many ways, because it presents a big paradox. These racial hierarchies are at work in Britain to subordinate the Welsh. In fact, this is one of the the key drivers of the Welsh migration. So you are absolutely right. The irony is that the anti-colonial strategy that the Welsh adopted was actually to go and colonise somewhere else. The Welsh begin to establish themselves successfully and to live just as they'd hoped, governing themselves, speaking the Welsh language and pursuing Welsh traditions. Mr. Benjamin Brunt was a very staunch Methodist. Each family was given one square kilometre, and the more devout of them donated the corner to have a chapel built. So when you're driving around these square grid fields, you'll see a little remote chapel. And they're quite quaint. They're quite small, but they are distinctly Welsh in style. The other Welsh institution they continue is that of the Eisteddfod. Well, an Eisteddfod is a competitive event where singers of all ages compete for the prize of best singer, best folk singer, dancing even, and poetry readings, cultural things. And they compete for being the best. The Eisteddfod was one of the first things they started when they got there. Let, let's have a proper Eisteddfod. We don't have to worry about the English anymore. We'll have it our way. You can hear the pride in Benjamin Brunt's letters when he describes this. Of course, we have our singing festivals, concerts and Eisteddfod, all in Welsh, not the same as you in many parts of Wales, carrying on all in English and pushing the ancient language of the land into the background. Uh, my Patagonia, an me, with a Camry, This hard-won utopia doesn't last. Professor Lucy Taylor again. In 1884, the Argentine state eventually arrived in Patagonia and took over government. So the Welsh themselves then lost their autonomy. Uh, Ironically enough as well, they were also forced to send their children to Spanish-speaking schools in order to learn about the great and glorious Argentine state. And this is an echo of what's been happening in Wales, where Welsh people uh, were forced to send their children to English-speaking schools and to celebrate the glories of the British Empire. The Welsh now have to pay taxes. The men have to do their military service. However, the community can still continue to live in relative security. But the Argentine campaign, known as a conquest of the desert, leads to a very different fate for the indigenous people. Even as late as 1865, 
the Argentine government was actually only in control of half of the territory marked as Argentina on the map. The rest of it was under control of indigenous people. So they have this two-pronged strategy in order to exert state control over these territories. One of them is to bring in the settlers, like the Welsh, and implant them, as it were, a planter class. The other thing that they intended to do, though, was to take power by force. So the army was sent from the north and eventually arrived in the Chubut Valley in the 1880s. As the Welsh looked on, the violent removal of indigenous people by Argentine soldiers began. Lewis Jones records that in 1882, the Welsh sent a strongly worded letter, signed by all, to the general in command of the military campaign. We plead for clemency and express our strong feelings in favour of some of the Aborigines and ask that he leave our old indigenous neighbours in their homes. These pleas go unheeded, as another Welsh settler describes. I well remember seeing pass in me one day some hundreds of these unfortunate prisoners, surrounded by soldiers on their march to the sea to be taken away in vessels to Buenos Aires, where they were to be given away as servants to rich people, or rather as slaves. I could not help shedding tears to see the poor Indians thus treated for trying to defend their own liberties. Jonathan Kerithig Davis, 1882. The Welsh did not intend to eliminate Indigenous people, but it was an inevitable consequence of their arrival and settlement. The Welsh community is part and parcel of the Argentine state's strategy for exerting sovereign control over these territories. In that sense, yes, they were absolutely directly implicated, but there is no evidence of Welsh people being aggressive towards Indigenous people at all. As the century draws to a close, the Welsh community suffers a series of dramatic setbacks. In 1899, devastating floods destroy almost everything that the Welsh have created in the Chubut Valley, including the irrigation channels and most of their homes. Plagues of locusts and further floods make many of the settlers despair for their future. A Welsh deputation goes to see Joseph Chamberlain at the Colonial Office in London, asking for public assistance to relocate the Welsh settlers to Canada, a request he declines. Their plight attracts newspaper headlines throughout Britain. Welsh colonists who sought independence and found ruin. Pathetic story of brave but futile attempts at founding an independent colony. The plight of the settlers illustrates the grave risks run by those who emigrate to distant and little-known lands outside the protection of the British flag. Nearly a generation ago, these emigrants, ignoring the misgivings of all sober advisers, were induced by leaders more remarkable for enthusiasm than judgment to leave the Principality for one of the most unlikely regions in the world. Their visions of utopia have long since ended in hard and painful disillusionment. The labourers and sufferings of the Welsh colonists in Patagonia form a sad story of ill-directed national enthusiasm. 
over and over again in these columns we've warned would-be emigrants of the deadly loneliness, the privations, and the almost insuperable difficulties of all sorts. What can the emigrant do in a colony if it is fifty or a hundred miles from a railway of any sort? Police and courts of law, water supplies, schools, banks, jails, everything will have a personal value that's not thought of by the emigrant, and was certainly not thought of by the promoters of the Patagonian settlement. In 1902 came the biggest blow that the Welsh colony had suffered in its short history. Patagonian Welsh emigrants sailed to Canada. On Thursday afternoon, May the 22nd, about 250 Welsh people, men, women and children, left Chubut for Canada. All the expenses have been paid for by the Canadian government. It is stated that the embarkation was the most moving scene. The young people parting sorrowfully from their friends, all singing hymns as the boats were taking them to the steamer. On the 25th of June, over 200 of the Patagonian Welsh arrived in the city of Winnipeg. It was rather a surprise to many of us to find that a very large proportion of the younger generation were quite unable to converse in English, the languages being Welsh and Spanish. We were equally surprised that during the long years of exile they'd kept up all the hymns and songs of their old mountain homes. The Manchester Guardian, July the 9th, 1902. In the end, most of the settlers did decide to remain, but the second and subsequent generations inevitably became more assimilated, speaking Spanish as their main language and intermarrying with other European immigrants who arrived on the newly built railway. The dream of a large, self-governing Welsh province in Argentina would never be realised. Do you think Benjamin Brunt felt he'd made the right decision to emigrate to Patagonia? In his lifetime, he did, because the last letter that he had sent to my, before he died, sent to my grandfather, said that it gave him great pride to look out from his house at his wonderful fruit trees that were in full blossom. And he said he owned the land and he got this amazing family that had spread their some of the Brunt family have done exceptionally well. They own the biggest abattoir in Patagonia. So, yes, he felt that he had done the right thing. By 1912, emigration from Wales had come to a halt, and the colony might have faded away forever. But centenary celebrations of the arrival of the Mimosa in 1965 created a renewed curiosity about this once Welsh outpost and led to concerted efforts to revive the Welsh language and culture. Today, there are estimated to be around 5,000 Welsh speakers in Patagonia, not all of them with Welsh ancestry. And in the towns of the Chibut Valley, there are many reminders of the region's Welsh past. I met so many wonderful people at the Eisteddfod in Patagonia, the, the big national Eisteddfod, in Treleu. It's a very well-attended event, uh, with a lot of people from Wales now going in tour groups just to be there. In the interval, you have afternoon tea, a Welsh tea, and long tables with huge kettles, and they go up and down filling your cups, and they have this barra breath, this kind of Welsh dark black bread. A lot of Welsh surnames still exist. You walk along Treleu's streets, you will see the Joneses, the Humphreys, the Evans, the Morgans, you know, the headlining all the shops. 
The number of Welsh who came to Patagonia between 1865 and 1911 is probably no more than 3,000, a tiny number compared to the million or so who left Wales for a better life elsewhere during that same period. Yet for Welsh people, this little corner of Wales in Argentina continues to emanate a rose-tinted glow. So why is this tiny community on the other side of the world, why are there still TV programmes about it? Precisely because it's part of the mythology of Welshness, a Welshness which is about being good, but also about being brave, a story about the tenacity of the Welsh language and the tenacity of the Welsh way of life. Oh, Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani and the singer was Gareth Evans. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater. The podcast series is a culture-wise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.